Hello and welcome on The Barricades. This is a podcast produced by Eastern European journalists and academics, and I am Maria Ternat, your host. With me, as usual, is the co-host of the show, the Bulgarian-born Polish journalist Bojan Stanislavski. Thank you for being here with us, and we have a special guest. He is uh, Gabriel Rocky, returning to our program, a French-American philosopher, cultural critic, and activist. He is professor of philosophy at Villanova University director of Critical Theory Workshop and a regular contributor to the public debate. Uh, he publishes articles in, in the Counterpunch, the Black Agenda Report, uh, Lo, uh, Los Angeles Review of Books, and probably many others. These are just the ones that were listed out in his Wikipedia page. And um, we recently translated uh, one of his articles regarding Uh, Slavoj Žižek, because I find this to be very, very interesting, and the whole ideas he presents there are interesting uh, for us, also for Eastern Europe, but for leftists in general. Now, um, first of all, I want to ask, why did you think that uh, Žižek is important, and weren't you afraid that you were going to be uh, smeared at somebody that wants to destroy his reputation and wants to encourage others to cancel him? Well, I originally was not going to focus on Žižek because I have a book project that some of which we'll probably get into entitled uh, The Intellectual World War, Marxism versus the Global Theory Industry, that focuses on a lot of the theoretical superstars of the capitalist world, people like Badiou and Rancière and Derrida and Deleuze and other such figures who, at least within an intellectual thing, are kind of widely known. But... Uh, number of friends and fellow activists encouraged me to focus on Zizek precisely because of the enormous platform that he has, because he's known outside of the academy, there's films made about him, he's a kind of cultural icon of sorts. And so someone at your local bar who hasn't done, you know, studies uh, at the kind of advanced level is more likely to know someone like Zizek than someone like, you know, Badiou or Deleuze or something like that. And I also think that the Zizek phenomenon is really indicative and symptomatic of larger elements within the kind of neoliberal cultural apparatus. And so I understand him as a product of a system. And given the prominence of that product, I thought it was really important to focus on it in order to unearth the system, meaning I'm actually less interested in Zizek qua Zizek than Zizek as the product of the capitalist cultural apparatus that is promoting a very specific form of quote-unquote Marxism, which is, of course, not Marxism at all. It's a kind of pomo-cultural mashup that is uh, trendy and cheeky and quirky and weird, but not really helpful for understanding the world or, for that matter, building collective power. Was I fearful that I might be tarred and feathered by certain segments of the at least intellectual population? Yes and no. I was actually mainly fearful, given the financial resources that Zizek himself has at his disposal, that he might go after me legally or do other such things. Um, but I don't think that was really in the cards because he has such an enormous platform that I think, and he has done this thus far, 
can just basically ignore me and ignore the criticism because I don't think he'd have anything substantive to respond to it because the criticism is based on his practical record over decades and it's quite damning. Zizek also has a mixed reputation within the academy. Given that he said extremely outlandish and outrageous things in order to provoke people, there are many people in the academy who are just as happy to see him go by the wayside. And a lot of the Zizek clique, at least in the world that I'm in, if it be in the Francophone or in the Anglophone world, tends to actually be kind of alienated young people, a lot of them who actually also uh, traffic in kind of right-wing discourses of various sorts. Um, and so that uh, the, the, the fact that Zizek's audience is, is kind of split in this way meant that I wasn't particularly concerned about people who would have solid academic or, or scholarly reputations going after me, no. Um, before turning to Boyana, I can't help but ask this question because I think there is a danger in the kind of analysis that you put forward because also, not a danger, but maybe some sort of a risk in a sense that the right-wingers, and probably they are right, might say that figures like Jordan Peterson, for instance, are the equivalent of this type of um, intellectual star that is produced by the same system in order for somebody like Zizek to have an opponent. Yeah, it's a good point. The focal point for the book that I'm currently doing research for is on the global theory industry more broadly, meaning that theory industry has produced the likes of figures like the one that you just mentioned, but also figures like Hannah Arendt and Francis Fukuyama and Samuel Huntington and plenty of right-wing ideologues. And that is certainly the case. And I do frame the book in that regard. But my more specific focal point in my research is on a niche element within the global theory industry that I refer to as the group of radical recuperators. These are the people who have been promoted by the capitalist cultural apparatus, meaning this entire system of cultural production, distribution, and consumption, as being radicals, right? They often have flames on their book covers, and they're seen doing power salutes and with megaphones in their hands, and they're presented as, as real radicals who are pushing the envelope, maybe calling into question the most fundamental things about human society or the history of the West or other such things. But if you look at the work that they've done practically and their intellectual work, it becomes increasingly clear, as my own research, I think, has demonstrated, that they tow the most important line, which is they're anti-communist pro-imperialists, um, mm -hmm. with some exceptions that I'd be happy to talk about. Uh, Bedu, for instance, does take more resolutely anti-imperialist positions than someone like Zizek. Zizek has been an anti-imperialist in certain settings, so right, we could get into the nuances of it. But... Uh, it was important for me to focus on this radical recuperator element within the global theory industry precisely because of how dangerous they are. And they're dangerous because what they do, and that's one of their social functions, is that they take an intellectual tradition, Marxism, which is a tradition of thought that has arguably had one of the single most important and significant practical consequences in world history um, and transform it into a kind of postmodern cultural product by diluting it with supposed insights from bourgeois theory 
that make Marxism into a kind of palatable cultural product for mm -hmm. the global theory industry. What this does, and it's a part of the imperialist, it's part of cultural imperialism, is it then, it, uh, its aim is to destroy the historical materialist tradition and the dialectical materialist tradition of Marxism, replace it by this radical cultural product that is superficial Marxist, but it based not Marxist, and it has an enormous impact on obviously the intelligentsia, but also young people and students across the board. This stuff trickles into very powerful organizing communities, political parties, political organizations, and things like this. And so in that regard, I think that just as, and I could point to a number of other examples, Dominique Lesordo has an excellent book called Western Marxism that's finally being translated and coming out soon in English with 1804 books. Going back to Lenin's critique of Kautsky uh, in the almost immediate wake of the Russian Revolution, took a very similar position. It was class struggle in theory in order to demonstrate that the Western Marxists, or Kautsky and Lenin's case, are not actual Marxists, meaning that they are not dedicated to harnessing the full power of human intelligence in order to bring it to bear on practical struggles so that we can understand the world that we're in and be given tools for transforming that world. Instead, we're giving this POMO cultural mashup and uh, kind of commodities that we consume as a kind of ersatz for actual transformative theory. And so in that regard, I actually consider some of these radical recuperators to be extremely dangerous in the impact that they have on the left, while fully recognizing, of course, that the right-wing ideologues, some, one of whom you already mentioned, also have an impact. It's just that that impact is pretty transparent and obvious to a lot of the people on the left. The impact of the figures that I'm focusing on aren't. And in fact, I was trained that Marxism is Adorno and Horkheimer and Zizek and Bedou, and that turned me off quite honestly, to the Marxist tradition because it was idealist, it was disconnected from real world and other such things that we might get into. Sure. Wow, that's so greatly put. We can almost end the program on this point. I mean, it's it's really fantastic. Uh, I, I totally, totally agree with your analysis and I'm a great, you know, uh, kind of admirer and follower of your work. Uh, and, and precisely for the reason which you mentioned in your intervention here, which is, I think, the most fundamental thing that the left has detached itself from, like massively in Western Europe or, you know, in the West, in the collective West, as the Russians like to say, uh, which is, you know, you, your role in the whole system, your role in the society, your role in politics is not defined by what you declare, but what your function within that structure actually is. And when you look at things that way, you immediately come to discover that many leftist or supposedly leftist or leftist by declaration, organizations, persons, you know, non-formal groups, intellectuals and so on, they are in that because they are basically... Uh, you know, formulating some theories or uttering some statements which might have a very radical sounding and, and they might even, you know, it might be, there might be a lot of grandstanding to it, right? And intellectual posturing and so on and so forth. But capitalism can easily accommodate that, you know? And, and when you look at it, this is precisely when you come to understand how primitive these, the, the, the ideology or pseudo ideology of the, of the synthetic left is. Which is, you know, a lot of a lot of words. And take Zizek, for example. You know, Zizek is a, is a person which is very, which the Eastern European left, okay, which we are part of, 
myself, Maria, and many of our friends and uh, and you know comrades, we are part of. And and Zizek is presented to the world as the you know the top notch product of our left. You know, oh, th- th- there is nothing better than the Eastern that the Eastern European left has. Uh, could have ever done than produce Zizek and send him all around the world to preach all the all those things. And then you come to listen to those preachings, and you know you discover after uh, after the first sort of you know few after the first fifteen minutes, let's say, right? You some you, you know you come to discover that there's it's just it's it's a word salad. Like mostly, it's like a lot of very complicated you know phrases which are which could be intimidating even intellectually for people who you know perhaps are not familiar with philosophy or people who are beginners on the left and they come to you know to encounter someone like Zizek who you know quote like shuffles quotes and then all those complicated phrases. But then when you break it through reality and through some practice and through some some kind of usability, like how can I actually practically use it? As a campaigner or as an activist or as, you know, as a, as a politician or beginning politician or whatever, commentator, even if you like, then you yeah. cannot use it in any in any meaningful way. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. That's that's the whole that's the whole thing here. And, and that's the function of Zizek is precisely. And I think Maria is right here. The function of Zizek is to to contribute to the synthetic discourse, which is synthetic discussion, which, I mean, there's nothing genuine about it. It's only synthetic. You, Maria, mentioned Jordan Peterson. That's exactly it. I mean, both Jordan Peterson and Slavoj Žižek, they have one thing in common, which is particularly irritating to me. I mean, extremely annoying. Is like when you strip their, their theories or their statements of this word salad, of this window dressing, you know what remains? Pure banal nonsense that's what remains like you know in the case of jordan peterson make your bed that's his that's his you know uh, advice to humanity in the case of in the case of zizek is like you have to think of a better world more more in, uh, you know more intensely and it's all you know it's it's all about some kind of some kind of game and then you know this game is not even funny because when you come to think of this great debate and i'm making inverted commas uh, uh, you know signs in the air for those who listen to the audio uh, th- this debate between Peterson and Zizek, you will see that there was no discussion there. There was nothing to it. It was it was a complete loss of time for me. I've lost like two hours hoping to to see something you know controversial, and and uh, you know I'd like to 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 uh, to ask you uh, Gabriel to comment on on how do you think this this Frankfurt kind of school uh, legacy has contributed via Zizek and via other people. To creation, uh, to, to creating this this entity, which is exactly the left, or the kind of socialist left, communist, whatever that that capitalism can easily accommodate and use for its own purpose. Like, for example, many socialist, communist, even groups in the U.S. Mm-hmm. When you see their history, I mean their current even history, you will see that what they are doing is they are staging liberal rallies and they sometimes try to nudge people to something you know, social democratic, and that's it. And that's supposed to be their great, you know, five. So please comment, comment on that and, and, and tell me what are your, your conclusions? Well, there's a lot in what you said. It's very, very rich. And so if I could, I'll, I'll just pick up on your first statements. And that is that I couldn't agree more that when you look at the work of intellectuals, you should judge that work from the point of view of the primacy of practice. People will say, re-say, and, uh, you know, kind of, 
reframe what it is that they're doing in very, very different ways. And if we just look at their discourse and not at what they actually do and their theoretical practice, then we can be lost easily in their word salads, as you say. And the theoretical practice is not simply kind of what one does as an intellectual, but more specifically, how one's actions as an intellectual are situated within the social totality. And so much of the approach to intellectual history, unfortunately, is idealist through and through, meaning that it thinks that it's ideas that drive history. And that the reason that you have someone like Zizek is because he's responding to Althusser and Lacan, who are responding to Marx and to Freud. And you tell these idealist histories in which there are ideas in the abstract and intellectuals responding to intellectuals. The problem with that is that, that that's not actually how intellectual history functions. Because intellectual history is part of a larger social totality that is driving the production of certain types of ideas and trying to destroy or eliminate the production and circulation of other types of ideas. And so what we need to do is look at the intellectual practice of figures like Zizek or some of the others that we're talking about, but situate them within a materialist social totality so that we analyze the forces that have produced the figures who are producing the ideas that are so widely circulated. And a large part of my research has to do with unearthing the architecture of the U.S. national security state and the British national security state in the cultural Cold War and its attempts to shore up what it refers to as the compatible left. And Mm -hmm. so it funded... Uh, to the tune of millions of dollars, whole series of propaganda campaigns and institutions that had an expansive, expansive effect. In fact, so far that in the, so far that in the work of someone like you, Wilford, he refers to as the, the Congress for Cold Freedom, one of the many propaganda platforms of the Central Intelligence Agency, as being perhaps the largest patron of arts and culture in the history of the world. Right. So these are enormous, enormous enterprises. And what we have to do and what I'm trying to do in my own research is look at the way in which the capitalist apparatus of cultural production, driven by these materialist forces like some of the ones that I just mentioned and others, actually functions as the overall architecture within which then individual intellectuals will produce ideas that they'll market within this larger system. And the ideas that receive uplift, meaning those that uh, take the kind of elevator to the sky and become immediately the most prominent and important ideas that are then parachuted everywhere else over the world, are those intellectuals whose theoretical practice give to the system exactly what the system wants. That is what Zizek is very, very good at doing. There's a word for that in the history of Marxism. It's called opportunism. When an individual gives to a system, particularly a capitalist and cultural imperialist system, what it wants and what it gets in return is stardom, fame, junkets, money, and I'm sure a whole series of other things, right? All of the fringe benefits of being part of the intellectual labor aristocracy, if you will. And so it's these mechanisms that drive intellectual history, not ideas themselves, meaning it's the economic a mode of production of capitalism that is produced within its superstructure, the cultural apparatus that I was talking about, this entire system of ideas, uh, I'm sorry, system of production, circulation, and, and distribution that includes, of course, 
universities, publishing houses, the conference circuits, uh, newspapers, journalistic platforms, uh, all of this is part of this bourgeois cultural apparatus. And one of the fundamental goals of the capitalist world has been to promote the compatible left at the expense of the communist or socialist left. The compatible left is a left that could be take very different forms. It could be anarchist, it could be liberal, it could be Maoist, it could be a lot of different things. Trotskyist, for sure. Absolutely. Um, it cannot be Leninist. We should be clear about Leninist, not as Zizek understands what Leninism is, but Leninism as Leninists have historically understood. So people like Ho Chi Minh or Mao or other people like that. Um, and the compatible left does allow for a certain uh, margin of maneuver, if you will. And you can have internal debates within that compatible left. But the most important thing is that the compatible left is lined up ideologically on what the capitalist ruling class wants. And the two pinnacles, really, or the two touchstones for that are that you have to be against actually existing socialism in hopefully all of its manifestations, but at least the overwhelming majority of them, right? Yeah. Because someone like Bajou, for instance, supported the Maoist cultural revolution for a few years, but is anti-China otherwise across the board, right? Yeah. And you have to be pro-capitalist or at least be accommodating with the capitalist order. And so what so many of these figures from the Frankfurt School to the present agree on is many of them say capitalism is a horrible system. And they'll describe it in minute detail and kind of phenomenologically how horrific capitalism is. It hijacks our desires. It hijacks the way we think about the world. It penetrates into the deep inner sanctum of our libido and all of these things, some of which are absolutely 100% true. And there are also insights that are taken from the Marxist tradition. But they, at the end of the day, line up on the position expressed by Winston Churchill, of course, who has a well-known record as being a barbarian in the, you know, in the colonial enterprises of the British Empire. And that is that capitalism is the worst possible system, but there isn't another one. And there's no alternative, right? Yeah. And so yeah. what these thinkers yeah. do, and that's their social function that Boyan, you pointed out as well, is that they are with corralling potentially insurgent elements within the population into potential intellectual and discursive critiques of capitalism, but ultimately a rejection of any alternative to capitalism. That's why they've been promoted. That's why they're the superstars. They're the superstars not because they're the smartest people on earth or they've introduced the most interesting philosophic system. It's because they have a very good nose and they've had that nose to the winds of the capitalist cultural apparatus. And they smell exactly what it is that the system wants. Radicality divorced from a real alternative to the capitalist world. And that's why they're promoted so widely. I would go now, I'll go back a little bit to, to your article. And um, this very interesting period that you're analyzing when uh, Zizek is actually running and he wants to become the president of the country, but he's running with the Liberal Party, which is not a Marxist party, not a socialist party. But that aside, he even states at some point in an interview that in terms of privatizations, he's a pragmatist. If it works, why not? Well, for a person that lived in Romania... And for whom? It works for, for whom? whom? That's, exactly. that's the kind of... You know, because we lived in Bulgaria, in Romania, 
And let me tell you, Gabriel, I'm now conducting a research on what happened in a mono-industrial city after the um, steel um, factory closed down. And it's, you know incredible what happened to us due to these privatizations. And there are people who say, okay, but he said it in a context. Well, I don't buy that. Even saying this into a context, given the experience that I had. Material, concrete experience. Concrete experience of millions, tens of millions of people. Exactly. Well, even saying it into a context is like saying, well, Rape is good. Why not? I mean, uh, if it works, you know, I mean, you can't say something like this, especially uh, now that we experience, you know, the effects uh, that the privatizations had on our countries, Romania, Bulgaria, Poland. Yeah. And he hasn't gone back on these statements. Right. As far as I know, I mean, he, the guy says everything and it's opposite all of the time because that's what opportunists do. Right. They take up space by saying everything and it's opposite uh, ad nauseum. But as far as I know, he's not an outspoken critic of the dismantling of the Soviet sphere of influence and has not t- taken a very clear position regarding the absolutely abysmal and horrific consequences on human life, human health, education life expectancy, mental health, go on down the list for millions of people across the Soviet Union and the entire Soviet sphere of influence. And of course, he was a supporter of this liberal party that he helped co-found. He ran as for president of the country on their ticket. And he is on record saying that he supported them during the first 10 years of their of them being in power. And so they oversaw these very brutal um, privatization schemes that led to uh, economic counter-reforms, the complete dismantling of, the, of the, the kind of social welfare state, destroying the industrial sector, um, fostering basically a collapse in real wages. Yeah, civilizational downgrade, let's be honest. That's what yeah. we experience here in Eastern Europe. Yeah, across the board, the destruction of the lives of the masses. But Boyan, I think you're right, it did work for a very small sector of the population. Including Zizek. Including. Exactly, exactly. And that's what I wanted to get to, is that, so Zizek cut his teeth as an anti-communist dissident who was, wrote his first book on Heidegger, right? Martin Heidegger is an unrepentant Nazi who has a very clear record, not only supporting the Nazis, but working as a Nazi rector in a German university, refused to apologize for it, or, or change course in the wake of World War II, was then rehabilitated by a lot of the French theorists, particularly people like Jacques Derrida, as being the kind of greatest thinker of the 20th century. Derrida, who was also involved in running anti-communist, uh, illegal campaigns against Czechoslovakia, and was arrested for that briefly and detained briefly for that. These are the people who Zizek was originally attracted to. So he is on record as being part of this anti-communist, Heidegger-inspired dissident movement, wrote as a political columnist for Mladina magazine, which was accused of being CIA by the Yugoslav Communist Party, and then proceeded to support this party that for years was dismantling and doing all the things that we were just talking about. And what did he get in return for that? Well, Zizek was part of the opportunist, petty bourgeois class segment within former uh, 
socialist countries that has benefited immensely from becoming a star in the Western capitalist system. The guy's an Eastern informant who sold out the Yugoslav people for his own career and did it very explicitly, politically, intellectually, and he even supported the NATO bombing of Yugoslavia. He's on board with supporting the most heinous and criminal assassination of obviously some people who are involved politically, but also a lot of innocent civilians who got killed in this uh, horrific enterprise. All of that, of course, is fine from Zizek's point of view because he has benefited immensely from it. He's someone who sold out the people for his own career. There's no better definition of an opportunist than someone who would be literally willing to throw millions of people under the bus for his stardom, his fame, his hits, his likes, his publications, his junkets, etc. Moreover, he's a big supporter, of course, of the European Union and of NATO, um, Slovenia. Especially now, he's a view what's happening in Ukraine right now, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. He's a supporter of the U.S.-led proxy war in the Ukraine. He's pro-imperialist in that regard. And he also just doesn't understand very fundamental things about global class struggle, uh, which we could get into. But a lot of that is because the lines that he takes coalesce perfectly with what the capitalist system wants. And so here you see the perfect synergy between what I was talking about before, the capitalist cultural apparatus that is an element of the superstructure that is looking for the intellectuals that it will give uplift to and create enormous opportunities for if they give to the system what it wants. And what do you have? You have a fake Marxist who is a pro-imperialist who has a very concrete record of politically and intellectually supporting some of the most heinous forms of capitalism. And he says it. It's not like he's even hiding this, right? I have numerous quotes in the piece that we're talking about where he says it very explicitly himself. Yes, yes, he does. And uh, just one more thing here. But how do you explain? Because there are a couple of instances where he seems to be supporting the right causes. For instance, he supports uh, Julian Assange. And uh, he is... Well, but there are many right-wingers uh, who support Julian Assange too. So, you know, I mean, you can also <laughs> you can always make that case. Yeah, he but... He doesn't stand out, necessarily. He doesn't stand out. This is the first thing. And the second thing, you know what I find very interesting? And I think it's, it's, it's vital to discuss this. Because, of course, he has this word salads. Of course, he salad when he writes or he talks. But he's very clear when he discusses... Um, U.S. imperialism. For instance, he said that uh, since uh, Putin is the invader and Ukraine is like uh, an innocent victim, he has to be castrated because this is what you do to invaders. So, no, I'm. Mean, this is so primitive. So primitive. This is yes. this is the lab clean example of intellectual and primitivism. He- Can you get more primitive than this? I'm sorry. It's just. And he also helped create, you know, this mythology where you have the aggressor and you have the victim and anything you say means that you downplay the the aggression and all the rest. And there is, so first thing, he sometimes seems to support the right causes. And the second thing, when he seems confused, it's okay, it's about a lot of things, but not 
he doesn't seem at all confused about U.S. imperialism. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, Zizek has such an enormous platform and is constantly pumping things out. And so he's taken a lot of positions. Some of them he's contradicted over time. It is true that if you look at his record, he supports Julian Assange. He has expressed support for the Bernie Sanders campaign in the U.S. He's, as far as I know, he's expressed at least some concern for the Palestinian people and the Palestinian struggle. He at times has pointed out the U.S. imperial record internationally. There are certain elements that you could, you know, you might want to agree with kind of tactically speaking. Like there's a lot of people who would, you know, support Sanders not as the savior or the kind of strategy, but as a tactic within the U.S. empire for, you know, a better option than someone like Biden or Trump, for instance. And so I think it is important to point out that, yeah, Zizek has taken some of those types of positions, but it's also important to highlight how those positions are situated within a larger political spectrum. And it is true that the lines that Zizek has taken are generally close to a kind of social, a Yankee social democratic orientation, meaning that it's a form of kind of reformist Marxism that's very widespread within the imperial core that also has a deep and long history of supporting imperialism, right? And it's also, he tends like to take Bernie positions. Exactly. exactly. Like Sanders, like the Second International, you know, these histories are long and deep and hopefully your viewers and listeners uh, know them and know the important Marxist critiques of them. Um, and it's not by chance that publication platforms like the Jacobin would take Zizek's back and because they're also in the exact same kind of complex of the the uh, capitalist and pro-imperialist, at least usually on, on the most important issues, lines. And that's one of the reasons that they're also uh, supported and so highly visible. But the other thing that's important about a lot of the positions that Zizek takes is that he, like many of the other radical recuperators of which he's, you know, one of the important figures in this camp, they take positions where they support causes as long as they're struggling and losing. But yes, anytime there's a real struggle for people's power and it can seize something like state power and actually use the full power of the state apparatus in order to improve the lives of the working and oppressed masses of the world, that is verboten. That is uh, beyond the pale. It is bureaucratic, authoritarian, horrific, uh, worse than capitalism. He says, Zizek, of course, that communism is perhaps the most uh, horrendous occurrence politically, economically, socially in the entire history of the 20th century, right? Not oh, Nazism, not fascism, <laughs> not imperialism, right? But the fight against Nazism and imperialism, that is the worst horror of the, the 20th century. So we have to be careful on like where, what Zizek exactly is doing. He, like many other members of the Western left, he loves to support causes when they don't win. The other thing I think that's important, and this segues with some of the things that Boyan chimed in about, is that, so Zizek in many ways is an Althusserian Lacanian. He's drawing on Althusserian forms of Marxism and Lacanian forms of psychoanalysis. And this is situated in a deeper history of Freudo-Marxism, which you get in the early Frankfurt School. This tendency on the part of a certain segment of the Western left to take Marxism and try to mash it up 
with psychoanalysis, which in the case of Freud, Freud wasn't, you know, he was a, a liberal. Uh, he wasn't a Marxist or a historical materialist. Lacan, you know, calling him a liberal would be nice. He was a, he was a conservative and quite clear in some of his conservatism. And so when you mash together a, a historical materialist science for human liberation with liberal or conservative ideology, the consequences for that are often very horrific. And you see it in the case of his pathetically infantile account of what's going on in the Ukraine, because he makes it very much like the propaganda apparatus for whom he works into a psychodrama. It's all about Putin and his own individual psychodrama. Like Putin is not on the couch. Zizek does not have access to the inner psyche of Putin. Nor does, uh, nor do any of the kind of journalists who are the stenographers of power within the Western press. And what a psychodrama does is it completely erases the social totality and reduces it to an individual who's purportedly responsible for an entire social phenomenon. And then that individual is diagnosed not because they're on the couch, but because there's a whole series of assumptions that an individual intellectual, a Lacanian like Zizek, would bring to the table and project onto Putin. Exactly. It's all about projection. Yeah. A scientific, devoid of any evidentiary basis whatsoever. And he gets away with it in part because he flexes his kind of Lacanian jargon. And anyone who reads him often will say, well, I don't know what the real is and the symbolic and... These are really complicated terms. Zizek must have some privileged access to these deep structures of the human psyche that have been demonstrated by Lacan. Therefore, I just have to kind of follow along. But that's not the case at all. These are just made up idealist terms that Zizek mobilizes for a psychodrama that is pseudo-intellectualized via Lacan that basically amounts to the exact same position that the Western propaganda machine takes. And he did the exact same thing in the NATO intervention in Yugoslavia. His account of the NATO intervention in Yugoslavia is stupid psycho babble that is covered over with a pseudo-intellectual set of jargon in order to make it appear sophisticated. He doesn't do fact-driven analysis. He doesn't actually engage in a historical materialist account of the history of Yugoslavia, the history of Ukraine, the history of Russia. He just gives us a the standard Western propaganda line dressed up with some ref- some trendy references to Lacan or to Althusser or to the Matrix or to Black Mirror or to other cultural products of the capitalist core. Right. And he doesn't even engage in discussions, in any substantial discussions where, you know, anything that he says could be challenged like on a materialist and insensible basis, right? So he just goes out and gives those speeches or organizes performances with people like Jordan Peterson or something like that. And there's a lot of bombastic nonsense around it, a lot of hot air, but that's that, that's basically it. Okay, let's speak briefly for the end of the program about, uh, you know, you referred to this a couple of times, and I think it's um, it's a very important point to make here about the cultural apparatus of the capitalist system that, uh, you know, creates all those... Uh, all those semi-radical, pseudo-radical, you know, concepts, uh, which are for, you know, some 
I don't know how to put it, like, you know, less intellectually flexible activists to entertain. Uh, so so I, I think that it's important to say that this apparatus, apparatus is working very efficiently, you know, because it had actually allowed full colonization, full spectrum colonization of the left in the West to the extent I'm talking about like global North, like, okay, European Union, Canada, the United States, uh, I don't know, Australia, probably New Zealand and stuff like that. It, it, it's like the left today has unfortunately, and, I, and, you know, I speak from bitter experience because I am, you know, part of this great conglomeration called the left, uh, is, is, uh, has become reactionary and has become the status quo, you know, which people, when they want to go against the status quo, they cannot even relate to the left. Uh, and, and I think this is something very, very dangerous and is a profound success of this cultural apparatus. Uh, and, and, you know, also a demonstration of its efficiency. And I think that one of the elements, I mean, there are many, but one of the fundamental elements of, the, of this efficiency and please comment on that because you, Gabriel, you're you know a trained philosopher, and, and I, I want to get your philosophical and, and political analytical perspective on it, is that we've completely lost the most basic, the most the, the kind of the ultimate division between what is the right wing politically and the between right wing and left wing politically, what it is. And there's one fundamental thing. There are many, but one progress. Progress, right? And the left has always stood since its emergence, since the uh, since the the revolution, the French Revolution. I mean, since we had the gauche, right, and and you know the uh, the political representatives that stood for the new system, for the change of ancien regime, right? They were sitting on the left side of the parliament, and that that has always been about progress. That the, the kind of the the conviction of the of the need of progress. And, and, and the basis for any kind of intellectual or political ideologies and concepts has always been progress that we want, we strive for a better society, better organization of society, more equal, you know, and there are many elements to that, right? Whereas those people like Zizek and the synthetic left, I'm sorry, but they are demonstrating that they are increasingly against any progress. On the contrary, they, um, they embrace you know, all kinds of uh, regressive notions, some of them really dark, like, you know, death, destruction, you know, suicide, uh, let's destroy all industry, uh, you know, let's, uh, like, especially when you come to think about uh, certain elements of, of the political programs, like degrowth, you know, <laughs> that's that's such a ridiculous concept, like socialism and the left has always been about growth, not necessarily growth which eats up the entire planet, but growth as, as progress, as perspective for things to get better, right? And now we hear about overpopulation, like what, like the left is even taking part in some places in Eastern Europe, like in Poland, trying to shame people into not having kids because there's too many people on, on planet Earth. And, and all those things, I, I feel that they are genuinely against the concept of progress itself, you know, which is the most fundamental thing for the left. And also, it's very Stalinist in certain, in, in certain aspects. The, 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 there's a Stalinist manner somehow added to it, very dictatorial, very totalitarian. And when you link it with the kind of, you know, 
the, the concepts that are, are are described as the council culture or, you know, organizing witch hunts, you know, in, not only in the internet, but also, you know, people being fired from academia positions and stuff like that, then you see that they are actually violating their own provisions, intellectual and philosophical, because some of those people that formed the core of the Mark of Frankfurt School, like Marcuse, he wrote something. I remember this pamphlet from like 20 years ago when I read it when I used to still be a student. Like it was authoritarian mentality or authoritarian personality, something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And and it's it's actually you, you know, if you read it again today, I can bet that it's it's like a manual textbook for all those people who are organizing those spectacular witch hunts or cancellations in the internet on uh, the Western left. How how is this all working? I mean, it's so contradictory internally and on and 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 you know so so contradictory to the declarations that are being uh, made by those people. But it's still you know it's still there. It functions. It is it is it what I what I mentioned in the beginning the efficiency of this cultural apparatus or is there something else to it? Well, there's a lot in what you said, but I do think that you're right that the cultural imperialism that has sought to redefine the left as the compatible left has been very successful at certain levels. So that if you operate within certain segments of the population, like the petty bourgeois class stratum or the intelligentsia within the imperial core, you are most likely going to think that Marxism is people like Zizek and Bedu and Deleuze, for that matter, others like that. And that this cultural imperialism also has an enormous impact on the global south because then the intelligentsia is there often are put in situations, depending on what part of the global South we're talking about, the capitalist global South, where if you want to advance in the world, then you should be in dialogue with, you know, people like Judith Butler or Nancy Frazier or these types of figures who are, do not have a record of supporting actually existing socialism, of course, on the contrary. And therefore there's the larger kind of global impact that that has But another element that I think is really important is that this redefinition of the left, which I want to get back to in a moment, as the compatible pro-capitalist and pro-imperialist, or at least accepting of capitalism and imperialism, that project has also been driven by and a consequence of the evolution of capitalism, uh, particularly within its neoliberal phase. Because what we've seen since, you know, we could go back to the 1970s, and this has all been in fits and starts, but what is very clear at this point in time is that that neoliberal model has left capitalism in an extreme state of crisis, degeneration, and there is the decline of what many refer to as the unipolar world, or the world led by the vanguard of capitalism, which is the United States, And you also have the persistence of the global socialist project. So the soothsayers of the end of history had announced that socialism is over in the 1990s, but it's clearly not because of the persistence of socialism in a whole series of countries around the world, but also the very important rise of China, which is now the second largest economy in the world and is on course to surpass the United States and has a global development project, the Belt and Road Initiative, that works with 150 countries, maybe even more at this point in time, around the world and has put forth a model for global development that is pitted very clearly against the IMF and the World Bank. 
So what this means is that you have a crumbling capitalist system that cannot shore itself up and overcome its contradictions, coupled with not only the persistence, but the intensifying rise of the threats of socialism. Within this context, we should not be surprised, unfortunately, that the ideological uh, formation within the imperial core would be moving increasingly to the right embracing various forms of fascism and being increasingly totalitarian in its rejection of just the democratic access to information. The idea that people should have access to what communists say, what socialists say, what people in China say, what people in Cuba say, that democratic openness to thought and to discourse has been, I mean, this has been a project that's been decades in the making. It was already very, very small, but the vice is being put on that. And so increasingly, you see, given the crisis of capitalism and not only the persistence, but the rise of socialism in a particular, as it's manifested itself in China, has led to, it's a socioeconomic and cultural crisis within the imperial core that is going to, I think, continue to define ideological and, for that matter, more kind of uh, overtly socioeconomic struggles in the coming years. And I think that on that front, one of the things, you know, everything you said about progress, I, I agree with the fact that if we're involved in the human project and we want to take it seriously, we have to aim at progress not in terms of looking back on history and just thinking that people before were you know, worse or bad or something like that. There's all this moralism that gets bound up with the idea of progress. It's like, no, we want to develop better societies. We want yeah. societies that are less oppressive, less exploitative, that destroy the environment less, where people can actually have a sense of stability in their existence so that they can develop themselves culturally and intellectually. We want that progress. And there is a system called socialism that has proven its ability to do that. And so I think that right now we're in a situation where I don't think I fully share, I I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but there was a little bit of a pessimistic tone in some of what you said, some of which I share. But I'm also not simply optimistic at a subjective level, like I want to believe that there are other options, but I'm what I would refer to as objectively optimistic. Meaning when I look at the world today, it is very clear that socialism is solving a lot of the problems that capitalism cannot solve. And it's also crystal clear to me that there is an increasing level of ideological rejection of the dominant dogma, in particular among young people. But I've seen it across the board where the baby boom generation that had formatted us into this totalitarian and dogmatic anti-communism no longer has the traction that it once had. And this is due to a large series of factors, some of which are, I already mentioned, the rise of fascism in the imperial core and globally in certain you know, capitalist countries is terrifying to a lot of the population. The risks of World War III are now closer than they ever have been. And the doomsday clock is closer to nuclear annihilation than it ever has been in the history of humanity. That makes a lot of people raise the question of, oh, maybe I should open up my spectrum of analysis beyond what I've been indoctrinated into thinking. 
Thirdly, the ecological collapse is catastrophic. And this means that people are looking at a world in which there might simply no longer be a world if the capitalist world continues in the direction that it goes in. All of this is pitted against the resilience and the continued growth of the socialist world. And so I actually have a lot of both objective, you know, optimism about the possibility for human beings to recognize what's going on and also put themselves in a position where they open up the spectrum of analysis, open themselves to sets of ideas that have been excluded from the dominant discourse, because in radical times, like the times we're living in, we're going to need some radical solutions. And so people should plug themselves in and figure out what's going on, because really what's at stake, and this has always been the case in the socialist struggle, but you can see it much more clearly now, I think, that at any point in history, what's at stake is the future of humanity. Yes. And nuclear annihilation and ecological degradation put that at a level and put the stakes of class struggle arguably higher than they ever have been in the history of humanity. And so that objectively situates, I think, planet Earth in a position where the there are pressures being put on uh, political organizing and the ideological work that, are, that people are doing that are quite different than during the baby boom generation or earlier moments in global class struggle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank Thanks you. So thank much. you very much for it. Like, you guessed it right. I am pretty pessimistic at some, uh, some moments. And well, I want to here for raising my voice a few times and for interrupting. But I'm really getting so annoyed sometimes, you know, by all those things that we're discussing here. That is just somehow some, sometimes difficult for me to restrain those emotional kind of outbursts. I, uh, I understand it, that. Well, can I just say one thing on that front? Is that I think it's also really important to um, build collective power. And that one of the things that I take it that you're doing with your platform is you're bringing people together and engaging in political education and hopefully also bringing people into a larger collective struggle. And pessimism is one of the things that the capitalist apparatus wants to promote. Exactly. So that we are all isolated in our own individual struggles. We know all the problems. We think it's horrific. But then we ride terrified into the apocalypse all alone. Let's not let that happen. And a big part of my objective optimism is the fact that I'm plugged into organizing communities internationally in which I know full well that there are people who are profoundly dedicated to improving this world and are on the daily, on the hourly, doing the labor necessary to do that. That gives me not only hope, but that gives me realistic optimism. And so I would encourage anyone who's feeling isolated and pessimistic, get connected and get empowered because it'll give us the traction that we need in order to move things in the right direction. So sorry to jump in with that, but I think yeah, yeah, but thank you. This is a perfect this is a perfect closing remark for this program, and and uh, also I think it 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 can have a very therapeutic effect on many people. I mean, trust yes, me, we're, I going, bet we're having back and forth with our audience like all the time, and people are really getting stuck in all kinds of you know dark moments because the situation, objectively speaking, is difficult. So once again, thank you, Gabriel, for all the insightful comments. For you know. All, all those uh, analytical points that you made here. And uh, I really hope to see you soon back on our show because there is still so much to discuss. And uh, just for 
for our audience, please uh, you uh, visit our website, uh, visit our yeah, like pl- our platforms in Bulgarian, in Romanian, in Polish, uh, and in English too. Uh, you will find uh, the translation uh, of the most recent article that uh, we've begun our program with. Maria uh, <clears throat> brought it up, the one about Zizek, and also other uh, other articles uh, authored by uh, Gabriel. And we'll be working uh, to intensify our work on that front, like translating more uh, valuable work from different uh, interesting authors. Thank you once again, Gabriel. And uh, yeah, thank, right. Thank, thank you both for having me on. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Uh, thank you as well for the translations and all of the important work that you're doing across the board. Keep it up, and by all means, let's find other opportunities to collaborate and keep pushing things in the right direction, because if we don't do it, nobody else is going to do it. So we've got to work together and find ways to uh, to progress. So true. That's Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much.